As you sit yourselves down, take a copy of the Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one in the pew rack underneath the chair in front of you. Nehemiah chapter 5, we will be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. Nehemiah 5, starting in verse 1, here's what the Holy Spirit inspired Nehemiah to record for us in his journals. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who also said, We have borrowed money from the king for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold that have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also took, shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Let's pray. Father, we look into ancient words that you have had inspired, that you inspired to have written for our benefit today. I pray, Father, that you would accompany the preaching of this word with your Holy Spirit so that we might gain understanding and obedience to your word and that we may be different from the world that we live in as a result of it. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the people were building the wall around Jerusalem as God had instructed and as God had inspired Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem from Persia to lead the people in doing. But they were doing it under great, great duress. We've looked at this in previous weeks. They had faced stiff opposition from the Gentile neighbors that lived around them, specifically Sanballat and Tobias. The scriptures tell us they jeered at the Jews as they rebuilt this wall. We also saw the last time we were in the the text of chapter 4 that there were workers who were wearing down physically and becoming weary of the work of rebuilding this wall. It seems they looked up and saw all the rubble from the Babylonian destruction of this wall hundreds of years earlier. And they were discouraged at the size of the task. And if that wasn't enough, there were people within Judah, Jewish people themselves, who were not engaged in rebuilding the wall, who came to them. And in in chapter 4 we see ten times they urged these Jews that were rebuilding the wall to cease and to return home and to quit this work. It's not worth it. It was hard labor as it was, but discouraging labor on top with all of this. Nevertheless, under Nehemiah's leadership, the people built, and they built, and they built. And we last saw in chapter 4 that they raised the wall to half its height, establishing a certain minimal level of security around the city. This morning in chapter 5, we see that there is another opposition We see that there's something wrong. There's something lurking underneath the surface of these workers. There were internal problems of major proportions. And the text that we have just read is shocking in many ways. That the people have to build, we're having to build under such duress. Well, this morning I want to take these 13 verses and I want to walk you through three things. Number one, I want to show you the problem that exists among God's people. And it's severe. We need to see the problem. We need to then see, secondly, the response of the godly leader, Nehemiah, that God has sent to lead these people to rebuild this building, build this wall. And his response merits much of our attention. And then finally, I want to show you the solution that has come to to resolve this problem that we see in the first five verses of chapter 5. So let's go there first of all. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to lift out five problems that the people report to Nehemiah. The first one is found in verse 2. Here's their complaint With our sons and with our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Survival is on their minds as they think about food. It's not a break. We don't need a break. We need to survive. We need to keep alive. We have many with us, including our sons and daughters. We need to get grain. In other words, they don't have it. The second complaint in verse 3. Some said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of famine. So we get some more information here. There's a famine in the land. Grain is not abundant. It's not easy to come by. And if it were, this second complaint says that we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get food to eat. They're taking out home equity loans. 
to get groceries. That's intense. Let's look at the third complaint. Verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. They are borrowing to pay taxes. Can you think of a worse loan than a tax loan? The fourth complaint in verse 5. We are forcing our sons. Second sentence in verse 5. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. They're selling their children into indentured servitude to raise money to pay their debts and I surmise to even get their children food. They have to work for their food. There's a troubling, that, that second phrase, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Many think that that's a reference to daughters being sold into matrimony. And they're having to do this to raise money to eat while they're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And let me show you the fifth complaint. I got these out of order on purpose. Go to the very first sentence of verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Oh, the complaint there is the worst issue of all of this. Yes, they're mortgaging their fields and their properties. Yes, they're borrowing to pay taxes. Yes, they're selling their children into indentured servitude to pay their debts. But the worst is found at the first of verse 5. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as as their children. The worst point is their bankers are their brothers. Their bankers are their brothers. They've mortgaged their fields to their own kinfolk. And their own kinfolk is taking advantage of the desperate straits that the people of Jerusalem are in. The people were having to sacrifice way too much. And this is over the top, way too much sacrifice. This is wrong. This can't go on. God would not have this go on. Yet he's the one that called them to rebuild this wall. The sacrifice is way too much. The issue has been building for years. As we'll see when we get to chapter 6 of Nehemiah, they rebuilt this wall miraculously in 52 days. Well, these issues, the mortgaging of property to buy food, this didn't just happen automatically. This has been building over time. Famines don't happen in 52 days. Nehemiah comes on the scene and he raises up an army of people, if you will, to rebuild the wall. And that is the trigger point that causes these people to finally cry out and say, enough, we can't do this. In fact, look at just in the end of chapter 4, verse 21. Nehemiah says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And built, which means the fields were neglected. 
the property was abandoned while a raging famine was broiling. It's a desperate situation, and these people are at their breaking point. The ultimate problem is usury. Usury is a term of charging inordinate amounts of interest or requiring pledges of extreme nature to get money to buy food and pay taxes. It's usury. And it's happening within the congregation of Israel. They are predatory lenders. They're repossessing people's property because they need to get claim for the loan that they made. They're claiming people's children as security for loans to get food. They're exploiting these people with payday loans. The brothers were their bankers. The Jewish bankers and real estate barons took advantage of the people's desperation and they consumed their holdings and in some cases they consumed their families. What is Nehemiah going to do with this? I want you to know that this is Nehemiah's stiffest challenge as a leader of these people to this point. This is the most ultimate challenge to the leadership of Nehemiah. And he has got a problem on his hand par excellence. Well, I want to take you to verses 6 through 8. And I want to show you Nehemiah's response. And there is much to be gleaned from this. There is much for you to learn from Nehemiah's response to this crisis in his leadership of Israel. I want to show you three responses, or three elements of his response to this situation. The first is this, he had righteous anger. The second is he exercised great self-control. And then thirdly, he took very faithful action. We need to look at all three of these responses, for there's much for us to learn. First of all, let's look at his righteous anger. What does it say in verse 6? I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Anger was merited. He was outraged. And I'm saying to you this morning, he had rational, righteous anger and indignation at wrong. I'm going to give you three categories as I've combed the scriptures over my life. I'll give you three categories that merit righteous anger. And I want you to be careful because you and I have rarely had righteous anger. (laughs) We've claimed it, but we've not really had it. I want to show you what qualifies a man or a woman to have righteous anger. It's three things. Number one, the glory of God is defamed. The glory of God is defamed. That ought to start gelling up within us. Righteous indignation. Because we need to be jealous for our God. Not for ourselves. Not for our reputation. But jealous for our God in His name amongst the nations. His name was being defamed in this. If you look down in verse 9, he says we ought to fear God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. 
So God's reputation is not being proclaimed at the lofty level that it should. That's number one. Number two, there is anger in Nehemiah because God's law was being violated. When we see God's law in violation, it ought to stir in us the emotion of anger. We should not tolerate that. We should not succumb to it either. And I'll show you in just a minute, Deuteronomy chapter 23, where God's law is specifically being violated. And number three, we can be angry like Nehemiah because people were being harmed. That ought to stoke us up a little bit. When God's name is defamed, when His laws are being broken, and people are being harmed in the process, we are on ground to have righteous indignation and anger towards that situation. Our problem is, we're angry often when we shouldn't be. We get angry at the stupidest of things. And we're not angry when we should be. When we see outrageous things happening against the name of our God. We passively slink aside and let it go on. We need to calibrate our anger to be that of righteous anger. And we need to adhere to Paul's teachings. We don't let our, the sun go down on our anger. We need to hold that intention as well. And I'll show you here in a moment how Nehemiah does not let the sun go down on his anger. He deals with it. So number one, we see that his response included righteous anger towards the situation. And I think towards the people that are implicated in this. Secondly, we see self-control. Look at verse 7, first few words. Circle this in your Bible. You need to follow Nehemiah's lead here. He says, I took counsel with myself. (laughs) I took counsel with myself. I was very angry, and then I took counsel with myself. There is such wisdom here for us. He didn't snap off in anger and deal with this situation. He paused, and he took counsel with his self. Self-control. Self-control is a vital discipline that we must get good at in our Christian faith. It's vital. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and left without walls. I don't see Nehemiah being that man right now. He's got self-control. He takes counsel with himself. Rather, he took counsel with himself instead of flying off the handle and dealing with this issue in the flesh. Now, here's a key. Here's a key to this self-control that Nehemiah had. When you take counsel with yourself, you must make sure that you are a worthy counselor. I'll say that again. When you, like Nehemiah, take counsel with yourself, you need to make sure that you are a worthy counselor. How do you do that? You just have enough intelligence or enough tricks to calm yourself down, enough psychological tools and ploys to implement in your life to psyche down and be able to handle this right you're not capable of that and i'm not either 
When we talk about taking counsel with ourselves and being a worthy counselor, we must have this in us. I'll give you the verse. I, I think Nehemiah did Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's your worthy counsel. When you meditate on the law of God, and you have a righteous moment of anger, and you seek counsel, you go and you have the law of God coursing through your veins, and that's your source of counsel. That's how you counsel with yourself. Otherwise, you're going to counsel with what the world has polluted you with. You must be full of God's word. So Nehemiah, I will show you evidence, was a man of God's word. He's just like Ezra. You remember Ezra? Ezra devoted himself to the law of the Lord, and he set out to study it, to do it, and to teach it. Well, Nehemiah is cut from the same cloth. We'll see these two men had very different personalities, but they had the same core. And when they sought counsel with themselves, they actually were seeking the counsel of the law of God. Uh, Nehemiah's self-counsel came from the law of Moses. I find it in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. You tell me if this is good counsel for the situation that he is righteously angry about. Moses says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money. Interest on food. Interest on anything that is lent for interest. You're not to charge interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. I think when he took counsel with himself, and he's a man of meditation on the law of God. The law of God included the book of Deuteronomy. It was the fifth book of the law. And he found right there how he should respond to this situation. So I'm going to ask you this morning, what do you hear when you take counsel with yourself? What do you say to yourself? Do you say Bible? Or do you speak the world's wisdom back to yourself? It matters because you are going to have moments that you're going to have to take counsel with yourself. And I plead with you this morning to prepare yourself as Nehemiah did to meet with God in your self-counsel. We've got a conference coming this coming weekend, Friday night and Saturday morning. Spiritual Disciplines for Real Life. The conference is intended to teach us how to load ourselves with Scripture so that when we seek self-counsel, we get wise counsel. That's the whole premise of this coming weekend. So that we can walk through the paces that Nehemiah did as life brought extreme challenges. We need to walk through the challenges of life, maybe even righteously angry. But as a result of self-counsel, we need to respond in a godly way. You need to be here this weekend because you need to get better. I need to get better at that discipline. 
Let's look at the third response that he gave. The third one is, first of all, let me refresh. Righteous anger was his immediate response. Then he turns and takes self-counsel under self-control. And finally, he takes faithful action. He does act. He does not freeze up. He doesn't get passive. He doesn't stick his head in the sand and say, I don't see it. No, he takes faithful action as a result of the counsel that he received. He applied God's word to the situation and he brought charges as a result. Look at who he brought charges against in verse 7. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Man, that's tough to read. The nobles and the officials, the leaders, were charging usury to the people. I want you to see these nobles that we're reading about. Some of them are cited over in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 5. As Nehemiah went through and listed all the different clans that were working in different sections on the building, he came to Nehemiah 5, 3, 5, and he said, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Remember that? Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord in the rebuilding of this wall that God had commanded to be built. Well, those are some of these nobles that Nehemiah is leveling charges against. And not only would they not stoop to serve their Lord, but they were predatory lenders against their own people, taking advantage of them, expecting them to stoop to their needs for profits. This is a tough crowd for Nehemiah to confront. I mean, you confront the financiers of the nation of Judah the city of Jerusalem, and when you need finances, now he's got Artaxerxes' treasury, but some of these leaders have hands on that treasury that Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah. And he had to confront internally the leaders, the nobles, the overseers of the people. And I want you to know this morning that that's much more difficult than confronting Sanballat or Tobiah or even asking Artaxerxes for permission to go rebuild the wall, when you have to approach your own leadership team and level charges against them, that takes a stiff and bold, confident leader. And Nehemiah is that. Nehemiah did just like uh, Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they were arrested and told, you cannot speak of this God that you keep speaking of. They said, we must obey God rather than men. Nehemiah's got that running through his veins. And in this moment, he said, I'm going to obey God and I am not going to let the fear of man cause me to shrink back from my leadership duty on behalf of God. And so Nehemiah, we see in the text, calls a great assembly. He assembles all the people. This is the workers and everybody, the complainers. The, the nobles and the overseers, everybody stops and everybody gathers around. And he holds before them the practice of redemption. Look at what he says in verse 8. We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Wow, look at the circle that's happening here. 
Nehemiah is a redeemer. He says, we have bought back, we have redeemed our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. We've redeemed them. We're kinsmen redeemers. And yet you are selling our brothers so that we have to buy more brothers back. We have to redeem more. You're causing us a great burden. This is wrong. So we see that Nehemiah and others were redeeming Jews who were sold as bondservants back in Babylon. And now they're being sold as bondservants in Judah. Shocking. Leviticus 25, we read this. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of that stranger's clan then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Nehemiah is doing this. He's doing the law of God. He's redeeming his brothers. One of his brothers may redeem him. His uncle or his cousin may redeem him. A close relative from his clan may redeem him. Nehemiah is a redeemer. Buying people who are sold into indentured servitude back and granting them their freedom. And he's saying... You're causing us more redemption work. And we're having to redeem people from ourselves. Not Babylon. Not Persia. Ourselves. Stop. Some Jews are acting as Gentiles. And Nehemiah calls for it to cease and desist. Let's look at the solution. Let's go to the back part of verse 8 all the way through verse 13. In the moment of conviction, these overseers, these nobles, could form no response. Look at it. They were silent and could find no word to say. Stopped dead in their tracks. I, I praise God for that truth because the Israelites back in the wilderness with Moses would have grumbled against Moses. I, I read this and I'm expecting here comes the grumbling again. But no, these people are silent and they're stopped dead in their tracks and they are wordless. That's a good sign early on. So Nehemiah has the solution. Verse 9, so I said, and he then unpacks for them, what I will say is a two-pronged solution. And it goes like this, love God, love neighbor. That's his solution. It's the greatest commandments according to Christ. It is a summary of all the Old Testament law. Love God and love neighbor. Let's look at them each. Love God, verse 9. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? You hear it right there? There's the love God part. When we love God, we fear God. When we fear God, we love God. So we ought to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. That's the first thing. Now I want you to hear how this sounds like what Moses writes in Leviticus, back in 25 of Leviticus. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, take no interest from him or profit. Instead, fear your God. Same thing. Nehemiah says we ought to walk in the fear of the Lord because Moses was inspired to write, instead of loaning them with interest, fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Not as an indentured, an equal. 
So they were to fear God by obeying His commands even when it came to economics. (laughs) Even when it came to economics. And in that fear, they were to then represent God to the nations so that the nations could not taunt the people of God and therefore taunt God Himself. So first, we must fear God. Second, love neighbor. Verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, what do you do with that verse? There's some controversy right there. There, There's some that say, wow, Nehemiah caught himself in this own act, and he's repenting in this moment because he says, moreover, I'm even lending money and grain. Well, there's some study that needs to be done there to understand what Nehemiah means by lending. And in the second sentence, let us abandon this exacting of interest. There's a difference between lending and exacting of interest. Nehemiah was not exacting interest. He was not practicing usury. He was not a predatory lender. No, he was lending to his brother, as we see in Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8. Listen to this. I love this. We're going to come back to this verse in a moment. Moses writes, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's the lending that Nehemiah is doing. He's got an open hand and he's lending, not extracting interest, lending to his poor brothers. He's following Moses' law with an open hand to the poor. He saw that the times that they lived in called for gifts of benevolence, not loans for profit. And he's saying to them in this moment, I want you to love neighbor like I am. I want you to open your hands and lend to them to meet their needs, but not to extract interest from them. Stop that part. And so Nehemiah is calling them to follow his example of open-handed lending and providing. Nehemiah also goes one step further. I think this is rather important he leads them to a deep commitment to act on this out of a fear for the lord look at what he does he calls them to swear an oath to what they have committed to he says there i called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised Uh, nehemiah knows perhaps human nature Words are great in the moment of confrontation, but when it actually comes around to the time to execute what has been pledged, we tend to relax. And this issue cannot tolerate any relaxation of the pledge. And so he calls them to make an oath to God. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And he calls them to make that kind of promise with their mouth before the Lord. 
And they know this type of scripture. So he draws them into deep commitment to truly repent of this sin. Not lip service, but action must come and it must come immediately. And, and what we see from there is genuine biblical repentance. And it's quick and it's immediate. They say in verse 12, we will do as you say. They say in verse 13, amen, which means yes or truly. And then they close with the people did as they had promised. They did it in the moment. So there's no sign of resistance on the part of the nobles and the leaders. They are ready, they are willing, and they are able to repent of this sin and to make right by their wrong. I think we see 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 right here. Paul says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I think we saw that happen amongst these nobles in that moment. They had a godly grief. They saw that they had sinned against God. They repented of it. They were forgiven of it. And now they can live with their brothers and sisters without regret. We know the opposite of that is worldly grief produces what? Let me hear you. Come on. Death. That's right. We see no evidence of worldly grief in these nobles. We see only godly grief. And there we see they, they did what Paul said about they They said, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That passage in the New Testament is true of these nobles. They have proven themselves innocent because they were indignant, they had fear, they had longing, zeal, and even endured punishment to restore these brothers and sisters. To their original state. And so they restored them with their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses. And they required nothing of them. They were whole once again. And as a result of this repentance, we see that unity was restored. Because in verse 13, all the people, all the assembly said, Amen and praised the Lord. The case is closed. Wrong has been made right. They can now live without regret. And in one sense, they can be proven innocent in the matter because they've made people whole again. So what does this have to do with Rocky Point Baptist Church and us in 2018? Again, we've had a nice history lesson here. We've looked into the kingdom of God and how things happened centuries ago, millennia ago. So what? What does this have to do with us today? Oh, there's a great, important application that ties real well into what we've done around the Lord's table this morning. The overarching problem with behavior of the nobles and the officials was this. They took advantage of others instead of serving others. That's it. They didn't have an open hand towards their brothers and sisters. They had a closed hand. And they exacted usury interest from their brothers and sisters. 
And this was a contradiction to the ways of God. That's the problem. This is not God's nature as we see in the life of Jesus Christ. They did not act towards their poor brothers and sisters as Christ acted towards us. Uh, If you remember, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll finish on this passage. Go to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. In Mark 10, 42, we've got James and John appealing to Jesus for privilege. They asked Jesus in the end times, in the kingdom of heaven, for all of eternity, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other one at your left hand? Mark tells us that the other ten apostles were indignant. I think they had righteous anger. They were indignant towards these two disciples, these two brothers, for their audacious request. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 42. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Let me pause right there. The nobles in Nehemiah's time were lording it over the poor people, right? There's the connection. We go on to read, they were lording it over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. That is not happening in Nehemiah's Jerusalem. And this is the way of God. This is the character of our God. Jesus here contrasts the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is is a bottom-up model. The last is first. The servant is first. But the hierarchy of the world is top down. The nobles are high and mighty. The great ones are over the serfs. That's not the way of God. And and what's happening here is a refusal to be a servant to God and to others is to actually put yourself outside of the kingdom of God and you're steadfastly standing in the kingdom of the world. And this world is going to be devoured one day. The kingdom of God will reign forever. So why is the servant in the kingdom of God at the preeminent position in the hierarchy? Why? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 45 of Mark 10. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come To be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right there is kingdom ethics. It's impressive to think that a human being would serve others rather than himself. We love it when we see this. That's impressive. But it's an altogether different thing when we see God, the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, who spoke everything into existence, who made man in his own image and likeness. When we see that God stoop down to serve poor people like us, that's astonishing. 
The people of Israel are not imaging their maker, their God, at all until they repent. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We call Him Emmanuel, and Matthew tells us that means God with us. So God put Himself at the bottom of the hierarchy in the form of Jesus Christ. And He didn't come so that we would serve Him. He came to serve us. He fulfilled Deuteronomy 15. Listen to this and think about Jesus Christ as I read this. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Do you hear Jesus Christ in that? Jesus Christ, though he was equal with God, he didn't think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. He put himself at the bottom of the hierarchy. And He took on human flesh. And then even as a human being, He put us at the bottom of the hierarchy there because He was without sin. Flawless and perfect. Kept every command that God ever uttered. And yet He died in your place. That makes Him lowly for the moment. He had an open hand towards us. He didn't close it. He didn't exact interest from us. We don't work off our debts to be right with God. Jesus Christ worked off our debt. He redeemed us. He bought us. In bondage we were to sin and to death. And He bought us out of that by becoming a servant like none other. Worship Him for this. This is what we remember when we take the bread and the cup. He redeemed us with His blood and with His body. He had an open hand on that cross. He had two of them with open arms. Saying, I'm not going to charge you usury. You're not going to have to work to be right with my Father. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to redeem you. You're poor and you need help. And I'm here for you. That's the message of the cross. And that's what's not happening in Jerusalem in the 400s B.C. And Nehemiah calls them out on it to the glory of God. And they repent. And all is well again with God's people. We know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed Him to us. Christ is made in the Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1:3. He is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. And that nature is one of benevolence towards us. In this truth we must fear him. And in this truth, we must serve others so that we can imitate Him in His nature. I urge you to consider how Christ has redeemed you. And I urge you to worship Him for this truth. 
and then to treat others in the same way because that is the ultimate form of worshiping Christ, to do unto others what he has done for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we thank you for giving us what was written long ago so that we might be instructed in how to live in the here and now. We are a people who need words like this. And you have provided. Father, I pray that you would make us more like Christ. That we would be a servant to all. We not lord ourselves over people. And I pray that we would do this in such a way that your name is made high and lifted up. And that people in the world that see us would not taunt us nor you, but they would join us in worshiping you with such faithfulness. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.